Hey everyone, you're listening to Owner's Stories on WIR 97.3 Richmond. I'm Siona Petros, host and producer of the show. So over the summer, I saw a huge number of people learning about mutual aid for the very first time. It was beautiful. And even though the mass demonstration protests have slowed down in many parts of the country, I've seen a lot of people remain committed to the idea of supporting a community. I'm sure you've seen a massive push to give money directly to people via Venmo, Cash App, even PayPal, folks offering housing, creating accessible community gardens for people who need it. And all these things definitely existed before, but there's a surge of people who previously, this time last year, were never interested and now are actually invested in doing these things. And one thing I've seen a lot of people show interest in is the idea of communal housing. Some people call it communes, some people call it co-housing. And that's interesting to me because historically in American culture, things like co-housing or just living with people has such a bad rep in American culture and in the American imagination. It goes against the grain of individualism that our society runs on. And there's a long history of people who choose to live this way facing a lot of government pushback. So I talked to Michael about it and he and I both were like, Well, what exactly are these forms of housing? What does it look like? Is it efficient? Who likes to do them? And we both started to go down a massive rabbit hole of information and history and context and trying to figure out what all these things are called. So the first thing we learned is that this is actually called intentional housing, which was fascinating because I never heard about it before, but I loved the name. And then Michael found someone really dedicated to this idea of creating intentional community spaces for people who especially need it. I'm going to let Michael take it from here. Yeah, my phone is ready to, yeah, it's recording now. All right, so can you explain what intentional community is? Is it the same thing as co-housing? Yeah, so I would call intentional community kind of the umbrella term. So an intentional community um, is usually defined as a residential community um, where people share some type of resources. So different communities will share a different amount of resources. So some places like communes, everybody shares money, um, you know, any kind of income is, is going directly to the community and everybody, you know, doesn't have to really pay for anything on their own Um you can share housing in a way that's called co-living, where you know you, be, you buy one building or you rent out a whole building and then everybody's living in different rooms. Co-housing is more of a traditional um, housing model where you're buying your home, but you're still in a community that's kind of formed around this intentional bit where there's a common house, so you're paying for upkeep of the common house. You may be paying for a community garden or you know other kind of resources that the community can use, like the lawnmower, the shed, a lake, you know, things like that. Um, so there's communes, there's co-housing, there's co-ops. So there are housing co-ops where people are kind of buying into housing and they're, they're using that as a way to, to keep housing affordable. Yeah, those are the main types of communities. This is Crystal Bird Farmer. My pronouns are she, her. I live in Gastonia, North Carolina, which is near Charlotte. Um, my day job, I work as a facilitator at a center called uh, Gastonia Freedom School, which is for children with disabilities and does self-directed learning. Um, The way I work with intentional communities is I'm board member for Foundation for Intentional Communities, which is IC.org. So I'm a board member there. Um, 
I have been involved with the community's movement since about 2015. I started a local group here called Charlotte Co-Housing, so we were trying to form a co-housing community. And from there, I just kind of started visiting different communities and talking to a lot of people. And so my work is mainly around helping people to think about diversity and inclusivity as it relates to the community's movement. Okay, so I assume that intentional communities look different in different places, like what's common in North Carolina might not be the norm in California or in New York. Could you tell us a little bit about those differences? In the Pacific Northwest, like in Portland and Seattle, there's a whole bunch of co-housing communities. So co-housing works really well for whatever reason in that area. I think maybe because it's, it's a relatively wealthy area, so there's a lot of middle class, upper class people. Co-housing is definitely more expensive in terms of housing. So if you go back to the East Coast, that's where you'll see a lot of communes, a lot of income sharing places. Um, and that may just be because of the culture of, of people kind of, you know, buying some land out in the middle of nowhere and then kind of camping on it and building their own foundations. Um, so there's a lot of commune type places out on the East Coast in um, West Virginia, in Virginia and in Tennessee. Um, in the South, you know, there's a good mix of co-housing communities, but there's also kind of this effort by Black and Indigenous people to reclaim the land. So you may have heard of the Freedom Georgia Initiative, and that's um, a Black community that has bought, basically bought a city, you know, and they're using that to build affordable and um, inclusive housing. She first heard about intentional community from her friend. Yeah, so I had a friend who lived in Asheville, North Carolina, which is kind of the, the hippy-dippy area of North Carolina, um, and he lived in a co-housing community, and I was like, you know, I've never seen this type of model. They had a common house. All the homes were pretty close together, and people seemed to um, really kind of um, have a sense of that kind of real community where they cared about each other. They weren't calling the police on each other. Um, you know, they were sharing resources. So I wanted to find out more about it. And that's how I found out that there was a community forming in Charlotte. That's where I kind of got started. And Crystal found out that intentional community spaces are very white. So I'm a black woman. And, you know, it's important for me to feel comfortable in my environment. And the more communities that I visited, the more I saw that, you know, there's these communities are formed by majority white people. So they have kind of the values and the, the traditions that white people usually have. Even when you consider like progressive, hippy-dippy, what I call hippy-dippy type people, you know, they kind of have their own culture and ways of being. And that conflicts a lot with the way I was brought up and the way I wanted to move in the world. This really shocked me and Siona because the few intentional communities that we know are predominantly marginalized communities who invest heavily in community building since the state doesn't tend to provide the resources they need. The intentional communities movement has kind of um, overlooked kind of these communities that are already there, that are already strong. Um, the Global Eco Village Network has kind of a language around indigenous communities where, you know, they kind of acknowledge that some people are already living in an intentional community. Um, it's just not, you know, whatever, you know, the, the white people want the wording to be. There are, you know, communities that are led by people of color, black and indigenous people. There are communities that are kind of centered around their needs, but it's, it's in the minority of intentional communities. Most of them are going to be majority white. Most of them are going to be kind of in that white culture. So Crystal started to think about diversity. What would it look like for intentional communities to be really radically diverse? 
The first time I talked about this was at a co-housing conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And when I was there, you know, I just gave a basic presentation about the fair housing laws, about ways that housing segregation has affected the where, where people live in different areas of the country. And, you know, that touched a nerve with a lot of people. They wanted to have a big discussion about it. You know, other people started talking to me about it, and it kind of has evolved from there. A big part of her work in making intentional communities more accessible is the politics of it all. Black Thursday's movie just came out, and the Black Panthers lived communally. So, you know, they had their own form of intentional communities in parts of the country where they're operating. And, you know, there is a tradition of a lot of Black communities, a lot of Black activists living communally. And those communities have been violently, you know, suppressed and destroyed. So, you know, that's where politics come into it, whereas there are certain ways of of being and gathering that are okay with kind of the culture and politicians and there's some ways of being that are not okay. So I, I would say that nowadays I think people are trying to understand that a lot has been taken away from black communities. You know, we have gentrification, we have, you know, the extraction of wealth and giving land reparations. Um, those are ways that we can restore black people to some form of, of community living. Um, that's where politics comes into it for me. And that's not all. Beyond just politics, there's the policy side too. There's the Fair Housing Law, which says that anybody advertising their community can't say anything about race, gender, sexual orientation, age, you know, whether you have children or not. So that's against the law to kind of to, to advertise those things or even imply those things. And so it makes it difficult for intentional communities to kind of say what they are, how they operate, what they're looking for, and it makes people who are looking for communities, um, it puts them in a difficult spot because it's really like, okay, you have to email and kind of ask, or you have to go to their website and look at pictures. So the BIPOC fund is, is trying to uh, help that a little bit by creating our own database, um, our own kind of seal of approval to show that a community is inclusive, um, that it's maybe working toward diversity or that it has, you know, a diverse leadership. But yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of like underground guerrilla, just contacting people and asking <laughs> um, for now. When it comes to majority white communities, you know, I think they are very comfortable with the type of communities that they create. You know, they feel like this is a great way of doing it. Everything I'm doing is great. Um, it's a lot easier for them to kind of get through all the zoning laws and the government, you know, permitting process, you know, so they can build their communities. And part of my job is bringing to their attention, hey, you know, black people have 10% of the wealth that you have. So they may not automatically get a mortgage. Um, you know, their kids may not feel comfortable in the schools that your kids go to. So part of it is telling them, yeah, it's comfortable for you and it's great for you, but there's ways that you are preventing people from accessing the housing that you're living in. It's definitely become more popular and people are understanding that there are different ways of being an intentional community. I think co-housing has helped with that. You know, there's a lot of like high powered people in the co-housing movement who are just, you know, lobbying at the government level at different states, you know, helping people to understand this model and to kind of advertise it to people. So I think people now see it as a legitimate form of, of housing. 
Another thing Crystal really focuses on is reminding people that diversity is not just about race. It's an all-encompassing intersectional practice. It's what eventually led to her work on the Foundation for Intentional Communities. So I, I had already been in kind of these progressive communities where there's lots of different people identifying different ways. And some of the things that I saw as a black woman, you know, other marginalized people were seeing, you know, based on their identity and you know, they were feeling unwelcome. There wasn't the right language. There weren't people who understood, you know, how these different identities affected their experience. And so when I started to talk about racial and ethnic diversity, you know, I automatically brought these other factors in just so people can understand. You know, I, I wrote a book um, and in the in the first part of the book, I'm like, if you're going to address something, then start with race because that's usually a big deal. But there's all these other kind of factors of diversity and ways that people experience the world that you can focus on. The name of the book Crystal wrote, by the way, is The Token. Common Sense Ideas for Increasing Diversity in Your Organization. Selena and I were really drawn to this topic because America has a culture rooted in individualism and actively distancing yourself from community and family. And that's something neither of us fully grew up understanding because our families were big and included many people who were a blood family. But you know, they're still family. So home in America, I think, is the place that people go after they go to work. So home is this idea that it's, it's kind of your sanctuary, it's a place away from the stresses of the world. I think the ideal for Americans is that home is a place where we have all our needs met. So we wondered if the reason we've been seeing more conversations about different forms of co-housing is that maybe people miss that traditional connection. In fact, Americans report loneliness at a really high rate. A 2020 article from Scientific American cited recent research that painted a very dark picture. Back in 1985, adults in the U.S. had at least three people they trusted, but in 2004, that number fell to two. And loneliness is even worse among young people. The article referenced a 2019 research study that found one in five millennials have no friends at all, and according to surveys released last year, 71% of millennials and almost 79% of Gen Z respondents report feeling lonely. I think intentional communities, they're often described as kind of the old style of community, you know, so instead of everybody being in subdivisions and pretty little houses, you know, it's a little bit more messy, a little bit more integrated. You have to be able to talk to your neighbors, you know, you have to resolve conflicts, you know, you depend on your neighbors to some extent to, to help you. So I think intentional communities bring that back a little bit. You know, some communities have whole farms or gardens, you know, they're sharing cars, you know, so there's, there's ways of um, of needing people and that kind of interrelatedness is something that America has kind of gotten away from. So look, if someone is willing to put in the work to create a really intentional housing situation, one where you know your neighbors and you all work together, it can help ease a really deep sense of loneliness. People always have thought of communities, intentional communities like communes and, and really kind of like uh, wild stuff, but Community is important for people to feel like they can be supported, um, they can get resources, and they can just have fun with other people that kind of shared a similar experience. So I think that's important. Capitalism has kind of put us all in our own houses, in our own spaces, and told us, you know, this person is trying to take things away from you, so you shouldn't associate with them. And, and you know, I don't want that for anybody. And then, during last year's protest for Black Lives, 
Crystal saw what was already a growing gradual interest in intentional housing become a massive surge. It was a chance for intentional communities to really interrogate their own practices. So last year, you know, was a big turning point because people were thinking about George Floyd and racial equity. Um, and so I think a lot of people were trying to figure out what can we do to to help the, com the community's movement be more equitable. And one thing that FIC decided to do was to create this fund. And they said, first of all, 10% of any of the donations to FIC are going to go to this fund, but we're also going to raise money individually for the fund, and then we're going to create a council of BIPOC to run the fund. And so since I was a board member, and this is also something that I'm really interested in doing, you know, I kind of helped with creating the fund and getting this council started. So we have about 30 members, um, and they're all BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And, you know, they have different levels of experience in the movement, but all of that is valuable to help us understand what do people need when they're trying to establish a community or when they're trying to find a community to join. And so we're trying to create ways that we can support people, whether it's a forming community, whether it's a community that's already existing, or whether it's just an individual that is looking for a community. So we're creating all these different ways not just to give money to people, but also to give them resources, mentorship, you know, kind of help them in the whole journey. One thing that's really fascinating about Crystal's story is that despite all the work she does in the field, all of the advocacy and research, traveling, writing and talking, all of this passion, she's never lived in an intentional community. The reason is because I haven't found a community where I felt comfortable and that's related to race and, you know, my background. Um, so Charlotte, North Carolina is kind of like a lot of cities where it's heavily segregated. You know, there's the black part of town, the Hispanic part of town, the white part of town. And when I was in the forming community, um, working with, uh, you know, majority white people, they wanted to be near the good schools and, you know, shopping and all those resources. And that placed them in a part of pl the town where it's like, you know, am I going to feel welcome? You know, I've had experiences in Charlotte where it's like somebody asked me, you know, do you belong here? Where do you live? You know, why are you here? You know, those kind of things. And I don't want anybody to, to experience that. And certainly if I'm going to do my work out in the world, I don't want to be subjected to that every day. And I'm also raising a daughter and I don't want her to be subjected to any of that. So um, that's why in the, you know, the five or so years that I've been involved in the movement, I haven't moved into a community because, you know, I visited places and I thought I, I couldn't live here. So I'm not sure I can tell anybody else to live here. So that's why I want to help communities to understand those things. So I wanted to step back a bit. What does home mean to Crystal anyway? Um, so I have a complicated relationship with home because where I grew up, I grew up in a majority black community, low income, and all I wanted to do was get out, you know, go to school, get a degree and, and leave. And that worked for a few years. You know, I got an engineering degree. I worked in Indiana, but then it, it fell apart in some weird way. And I think that was related a lot to my disabilities and to the, the traumas that I experienced. But when I came back home, what I had was my family who supported me completely. You know, they helped with raising my daughter. Um, 
I, I found my neighborhood, you know, dealing with things that, that needed help. You know, their schools are still um, majority minority, um, you know, low income school. So the, the school, the kids around here need resources. The housing around here needs to be rehabilitated. It needs to be protected from gentrification. Um, you know, and so I saw a place that I could give back to because it had given so much to me. And so that's kind of what home means now is that it's a place that, that raised me. And even though I, I wanted to leave and I experienced a lot of difficulties growing up, now I'm an adult. Now I have resources I can give. So yeah, so so my community is kind of an intentional community. There are people who have lived here all their lives. There are people who care about the other people who live here. So yeah, I am, you know, I think that any community can be intentional as long as the people care about it and they are working toward, you know, inclusion and equity and access, all those things. And if Crystal could create her own intentional community, she does have a good idea of what that would look like. So my ideal community for me personally would be in a city because I like living in big cities with all kinds of things, you know, down the block. Um, it would be culturally diverse, so not just racially diverse, but have different people with different abilities, um, different um, you know, different disabilities or, or non-disabilities. It would have different languages spoken. It would have people of different ages. It would just have a acceptance and kind of a general welcoming sense to people that they can be whoever they want to be. And of course, that's going to come with conflict and negotiation, but we'll have good processes to work those out and people will feel like they're being heard, even if, you know, it's a difficult conversation. Um, you know, it would be in an area that has acknowledged kind of the the history of this um, systemic racism, you know, of housing segregation, of the way schools have been divided, um, the way that government policies have prevented black people from accessing wealth. So it would be in a city that has has done a lot of that work. And so I'm not sure there's a city right now <laughs> that is that meets that, but that would be my my ideal. Intentional communities have been around for a long time, but Crystal is willing to do the work even when it doesn't benefit her immediately, because ultimately she wants an equitable society to exist far into the future. And for her, it starts with changing how Americans live at home and interact with their community. Maybe still be a lot of work, you know, the majority of communities that start forming never actually get built. So, you know, it's still a lot of work. There's still um, a big difference in how it, how it's formed instead of traditional housing. But yeah, I think people are seeing it as a legitimate way to get back to that idea of community. Um, I would say they can look into it because certain marginalized communities have already created kind of their own way of being with people. And that means that you can access, you know, this, this way that might be more familiar, that might be more comforting, and you can create your own community, like kind of like a found family. You know, you can create these spaces using the traditional structures that have developed in the intentional communities movement. I wouldn't say, you know, go and join Twin Oaks or come to a co-housing community, you know, right away, because I, I want that community to have done the work and to be prepared for that. And if you want to start your own intentional community, or maybe you just want to learn more about it, Crystal has some resources for you. IC.org is a great place to start because it does have a whole lot of resources. Um, there's Communities Magazine, which is it's, it 
it is still a physical magazine, but you can also read it online. Um, you know, and that has been going for 40, 50 years, and it has tons of people writing about their experiences in community, and not just the good things, but also the bad things and difficult things. There's a lot of um, expertise there. Um, on IC.org, there's a directory where you can kind of look up what communities are around you, and visiting those communities is a great way to see you know, what works for people. And then you can also see, you know, what you don't like about different communities, because there are so many different ways to, to be in community. Um, and then FIC is doing courses that are online this year, where it's like, how do you start a contentional community? Um, how do you build consensus? How do you do facilitation of a group? And then, of course, I'm doing a course about how do you make inclusive communities. So I think those courses are going to be really helpful for people to, you know, get those starting resources that they need to just kind of move into creating their community or finding a community. Hey, Siona again, popping in very quickly at the end. I hope you enjoyed the conversation Michael had with Crystal. Personally, I know when I listened to it, I was like nodding my head in agreement. I think as a black woman myself, and even though I don't have all the same experiences as Crystal, because we have our own different experiences in this world, I understand that feeling of having to fight for space for yourself, having to fight for home, having to really challenge people's norms and be uncomfortable not be uncomfortable rather but make people uncomfortable with their comfortability especially people who think that maybe they're already doing all the right things right there's something she said in the interview that i want to play very quickly for you all <laughs> i believe in it i, I consider myself I've, i saw this on twitter an afro pessimist so you know i i i don't trust people to do it that's why i'm doing it <laughs> Just want to say Afro-pessimist, I feel it, I get it. Obviously, I'm not Crystal. I don't have all the same experiences as she does. But this idea of you have to do it yourself because no one else is going to do it is is so critical and important. And I think if more of us had that attitude and embraced it the way Crystal does, we, we'd be able to really radically change so many of our spaces. Also, interestingly enough, while we were doing the story, Michael found out one of his friends is actually part of an intentional community and has been part of a couple for the past 10 years. So our next episode is talking to her about what brought her from Tampa to DC, what does it look like to live in these spaces, and how someone actually navigates the challenges that Crystal brought up in this episode. Until then, just a reminder, my name is Siona Petros. You just listened to Michael Kamel. This is Own Your Stories on WRIR 97.3 Richmond. Definitely follow us on Instagram at Own Your Stories, O-W-N-Y-O-U-R-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. Definitely DM us, y'all. Like, we love to talk. Clearly, you just heard me talk for two minutes. Michael and I both love to talk, so DM us. It's our favorite part. You can find our podcast on all major platforms. And tell a friend to tell a friend. Every like, subscription, share, email we get, it means a lot and also helps us grow a lot. So, yeah. Take care, y'all.